This past Monday evening, at the end of Rebecca's uh, Dhamma talk, she spoke some about equanimity. And this evening, we'll continue to explore upaka uh, a bit more in depth. And we'll begin uh, our time together this evening as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama. So allow yourself to settle into your seat. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath or two. And if you listen carefully, you'll find all seven factors of enlightenment in place within Siddhartha Gotama. And maybe within yourself as well. Sitting under the Bodhi tree with the Bodhisatta, this just about to be Buddha on that now famous night. As he was protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and penetrating sense of investigation, accompanied by clear discernment. This about to be Buddha supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and the flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gautama sitting under the bow tree that night, with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive, open-hearted presence, as though he were an immovable mountain, the mountain of equanimity. In Taos, New Mexico, where I live, we have what is considered to be a sacred mountain. It's one amongst many mountains that surround the Taos Valley. This sacred mountain is actually within the Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians that sits on the north edge of the town of Taos. This particular mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people. And it's also a sacred symbol for many Taosenos. I have the good fortune to be able to look out at it and take it in in every season, any time of the day or night, on any day of the year, as it's very clearly visible from where I live. This mountain, any mountain, just simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain and hail fall on it, snow covers it, lightning sometimes strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it. All sorts of forms of life are born and die on it living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. The mountain remains unshakable, unwavering, the mountain of radical acceptance, the mountain of impartiality, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is alive energy 
a lively energy, but only exists in relationship to all of the myriad, lively, constantly changing energies that constitute it. And the mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intricately and intimately connected to. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on. It isn't attached or averse to anything. We might say that it lets life live through it, closing off to nothing and holding on to nothing. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. And so begins our exploration of equanimity, of upekka in Pali. Equanimity is a powerful force in our practice, a powerful force in the whole of our life. In the Buddhist teachings, it's included uh, as one of the ten paramis, one of the ten perfections. It's also one of the four brahma-viharas, the four divine abidings, which are metta, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and equanimity, upekka. It's also one of the two jhana factors that are present in the fourth jhana. And of course, it's one of the seven factors of awakening, one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness, investigation of states, effort or energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Upeka was the final factor to come into maturity before he attained, attained full awakening, full enlightenment, as the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree on that now famous night. With an evenness and balance in his relaxed and powerful presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. As he sat there with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance, seeing things very clearly and relinquishing, letting go, relinquishing every attachment to all formations of body and mind, and then breaking through to the great awakening, breaking through to the complete ending of suffering. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the power and the equilibrium of the mind, the heart, to experience all kinds of change. The fearlessness, the power, and the balance of heart and mind to experience every sort of manifestation and change in the realms of internal and external formations. And in the realm of feeling, the pleasant or unpleasant feeling that's associated with the arising, the change, and the passing of all internal and external phenomena. The Buddha described what is called six-limbed equanimity, meaning equanimity in relationship to what comes in at each of the six sense doors. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind door. This six-limbed equanimity was described as the equanimity of one whose afflictive states, or cankers, as the Buddha, Buddha often called them, have been destroyed. Destroyed temporarily, or destroyed completely, finally destroyed. And who abides in the natural state of purity in relationship to desirable or 
undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. And a quote from the Buddha in relationship to this. Here, a a bhikkhu or a yogi, a meditator, whose cankers are destroyed, is neither overjoyed nor distraught on seeing a visible object with the eye, hearing an audible sound with the ear, and then he goes on smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. He or she dwells in equanimity, equanimity, mindfully and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness, great strength and ease of the mind, ease of the heart, to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal translation of upekka is onlooking. So equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by manifesting a neutral mode, by staying in the center, by staying in the middle and watching things as they arise. On looking, it sees them fairly, without favoritism, without bias, without partiality. So one attribute of equanimity itself, as it's described in the realm of feeling, is neither pleasant nor painful feeling. The function of equanimity as an enlightenment factor is to inhibit partiality. And so upekka manifests as neutrality. We could say that equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or equilibrium between the opposing forces of the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity offsets the weightiness of greed and the weightiness of aversion. It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The mind, the heart, doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember as a child, I really loved to find that point of balance as I was playing on the seesaw or the teeter-totter, as we called it uh, in those days. And when I was playing on this with another child, both of us suspended on our teeter-totter seat, perfectly balanced in midair. There was always a kind of happy, almost breathtaking feeling inside in the moments when this would happen. Some of you may remember that from your own childhood. The poet T.S. Eliot said it beautifully. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection, while at the same time being an experience of great spaciousness and great strength of mind, great strength of heart. The Buddha used the metaphor of putting a spoonful of salt in a a cup or a glass of water. Because of the small container, the water, of course, will be extremely salty. 
It'll be very harsh. It'll be undrinkable. On the other hand, if we put uh, a spoonful of salt in a large body of water, say the size of Gaston Pond here near the meditation center, it won't have the same effect at all because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great spaciousness, we could say, that the salt is put into. And as we all know, life is quite salty at times. It's just how it is. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of mind and heart with which we can meet and look on at all of life's everyday experiences, as well as all of the subtleties of internal and external phenomena that we come to see and know through our practice. To look on with balance, with equipoise, with the heart of greatness, with what is called in the suttas in relationship to equanimity as a factor of enlightenment, to look on with specific neutrality. So what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, including at times the other three divine abidings, the other three immeasurables, metta, karuna, and mudita, including the other six factors of enlightenment, mindfulness, investigation, energy, energy, joy, tranquility, and concentration, as well as the arising of various other states, such as patience and faith, that all, all of this is met, experienced, and seen, looked on at evenly through the mind of equanimity. And as I mentioned uh, earlier in the talk, the function of equanimity as an enlightenment factor is to inhibit partiality. And so upekka manifests as neutrality. There's a wonderful little book of teachings from Zen master Dogen with commentary by Uchiyama Roshi called How to Cook Your Life, where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook, the Tenzo, and our relationship to food to teach us, in this case, about equanimity. And we, of course, can uh, bring this teaching immediately close, right here and now in relationship to our cooks here at the Forest Refuge and our relationship to food here at the Forest Refuge. And then also into our life when we're back home. And this is from Dogen. Handle even a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests as the body of the Buddha. This in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. And Dogen goes on. A dish is not necessarily superior because you've prepared it with choice ingredients, nor is a soup inferior because you've made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly, with a pure mind, and without trying to evaluate their quality, in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. In practicing the Dharma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same, and not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk, the mouth of a yogi, is like an oven. 
And this next, uh, uh, these next words from Dogen come from his time of life, the time that he lived where there was no natural gas, no propane, and no electricity. And this he goes on to say, just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and cow dung for cooking without distinction, our mouths should be the same. There should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So how does one look on at the mind with equanimity? What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? A simple example in relationship to our practice. We sit and find that the mind is tranquil, serene. And this is known. And we recognize that the focusing power of the mind, concentration, is evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object is uh, that the attention is connecting to. The mind isn't listless, nor is it agitated. But rather, it's interested and appropriately energized. At those times, There isn't any interest in or any necessity for exerting or restraining or encouraging the mind in any way. In our practice, just simply and clearly recognizing and knowing, and for some of you, noting without attachment, that this is what is occurring. That these factors of mind are in place for a brief or maybe for a longer period of time is actually something that contributes to the blossoming of the state or the blossoming of the factor of equanimity. Thus contributing to our capacity to relate to all things, all phenomena, with equipoise and composure. During the time in the culture of the Buddha, his, his metaphor for the mind when it's in this mode was this. One is like the charioteer who looks with equanimity on horses, progressing evenly. And more likely in our case, the metaphor might be, one is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity in a car that's running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. We're able to see and to know, we're able to take in what's in front of us and what's passing by. And we're able to take it in with ease with equipoise, with equanimity. As we practice, we begin to taste equanimity along with the arising of other wholesome mental states. And I think as probably each one of you know, until equanimity is really truly matured, we can lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago now, for the whole of the last two weeks of a long retreat that I was sitting, I practiced equanimity. And I practiced it in the way that it's practiced as a Brahma-vihara, as one of the divine abidings, silently repeating one equanimity phrase over and over and over again, first directing it to myself and then on through all of the same categories that are used for metta practice.
And the phrase that I used is, I am the heir, the owner of my kama, kama being the Pali word for karma, which is Sanskrit. I am the heir, the owner of my kama, meaning I am the heir, the owner of all of my actions or all of my deeds of mind, speech, and body. My happiness or suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. So that was repeated for two weeks over and over and over, hundreds, thousands of times. By the end of those two weeks, there was quite a deep and quiet sense of balance and evenness and neutrality neutrality in the heart and mind. A day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up, whoa, there's equanimity here. Seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity. And then the next thought was, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. And the thinking went on, and if this was a a Zen session, if this was a Zen retreat, a good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat, and Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And so then the thinking just disappeared. Well, later that day, I was startled, we could say, in a true Vipassana fashion, an an equanimity test Vipassana style. I got a note signed by one of my equanimity teachers, though actually the note was from all five of the teachers who were teaching that retreat. And the note said, we would like you to give the dana talk to the yogis tomorrow. Well, at that point, I, had, I was not a, a dhamma teacher at all. And so I read that note, and for a moment, or maybe more than a moment, <laughs> equanimity flew right out the window. And my heart felt, actually felt like it stopped. And the old habit of fear flew right in the window of my heart. And I thought, I can't. I can't do this. I can't do this now. This was my old habit coming up. I've been silent for so many weeks, so deeply into practice. I can't get up in front of all my fellow yogis and speak. It's impossible. I can't do it. And then the heart the mind relaxed and saw what had just occurred. And the thought came in, ah, ah, yes, this is my equanimity test, of course. And I can do it. And I want to do it. And then at that moment, a tremendous flood of gratitude came into the mind and the heart. Gratitude for all of the teachers, for the retreat center staff. Gratitude for the teachings and for all of the people that I'd been sitting with for those weeks and weeks. And just as suddenly as it had gone, equanimity was back. And what I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to be doing. Until Upeka has matured, we lose and we regain the balance and the equipoise of equanimity over and over again. Upeka manifests as quieting fear and dislike and resentment and the self-judgment that can manifest as guilt or disapproval of or not being good enough. It also manifests as quieting liking and pride and attachment and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think of as ourself, as me, as my experiences. 
Equanimity also manifests as quieting the attachment and the fear that comes up in relationship to others. When equanimity has arisen and it's developing, in those moments, fear and resentment and attachment and identification and the judgments of approval or disapproval, they all subside. Within the clear space of a momentary or longer true neutrality, there's nothing for greed or aversion to stick to when they arise. Equanimity fails when it produces what's called the equanimity of unknowing, which the Buddha called worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. So what does this mean, worldly-minded indifference? It occurs when we don't clearly see or see through the object of our attention with the focused attention of a concentrated mindfulness and investigation, but instead are blindly seduced by and swept away in the happenings of life. Seemingly, seemingly equanimous with it all. This isn't upekka. It's what the Buddha called indifference based in or produced by ignorance. And some words from the Buddha. On seeing a visible object with the eye or in relationship to contact through any of the six sense doors, Equanimity arises in the foolish, infatuated, ordinary man or woman, in the untaught, ordinary man or woman who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future results, meaning who hasn't understood or conquered karma or kama, who is unperceiving of danger in relationship to attachment or aversion. Such equanimity doesn't see through the visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually worldly-minded indifference based in ignorance. The Buddha was quite wonderfully direct and straightforward and uh, very succinct in his teaching. That little, uh, little quote from him uh, so clearly shows. So a, a brief personal story in relationship to this. <clears throat> when I first began living in uh, Taos, New Mexico, Taos is a place uh, where there are many, many beautiful handcrafted things in store windows, in shop windows. So I would walk along and look in the windows of these shops, and I would become very infatuated with what I was seeing. And infatuated to the point of, I wanted, I wanted it all. And sometimes even infatuated to the point of the delusion that I need, I need this and I need that. Which of course is a very painful contraction the must-have mind. It's quite painful. So after a while uh, of experiencing this, I decided to make a practice of it. So I would take myself for a walk and look in the shop windows again and again and again, day after day, not every day, but over and over again, and watch the process of my mind, my heart. And eventually, after time, I found that there was available an appreciation, just a simple appreciation of all of the beauty that I was seeing. And there was also a developing tremendous appreciation for the amazing creative capacity of human beings. I felt a lot better with that than that must-have infatuation. 
The Dalai Lama tells a story about himself being taken to uh, an area in a big city by a friend where there were uh, lots of shops that sold all kinds of tiny mechanical parts. And his friend took him there because uh, this is a particular interest of the Dalai Lama's. He's interested and fascinated by a lot of these little mechanical things. And he said when he first was looking in the windows of these shops uh, that he just looked and saw. But then he said he quickly, pretty quickly recognized that there was quite a strong inner feeling of wanting them all. He said, I just found that I, there was this strong pull. I wanted every one of them. And then I realized I didn't even know what they were for. I just wanted them. And I'm sure that every one of us has experienced the pretense, we could say, of equanimity within ourselves, in the midst of greed, or in the midst of dislike, or resentment, or anger, or fear, or disappointment. A kind of glossing over the ignorance, the ignoring these states, pretending to ourselves the pretense of equanimity. Maybe the pretense of, well, it doesn't really matter. That kind of an attitude. Or the pretense of, oh, it's all just really fine. It's just fine. Or the pretense of, I'm okay. I'm really just really okay. And maybe accompanied uh, by... uh, a slight or maybe not so slight moving away from contraction or an inner sense of grasping or trying to cling to that may or may not be known. This, of course, is not equanimity, but is actually indifference, which is the near enemy of equanimity. Indifference masquerading, we could say, as upeka. And of course, every one of us knows from our very own experience that when we're inflamed with greed or dislike or fear or resentment, it's extremely difficult. Or it just isn't even possible to look on at those moments with a true equanimity. Upeka is based on an attentive, clear presence of mind not on dullness, not on indifference. And it's not a kind of casual passing mode, or mood, I should say. It's not a kind of casual passing mood. And it's also not produced by exertion. It's the result. It's one of the fruits of our practice. The fruit of training the mind, training the heart, through the development and blossoming of the factors of mindfulness, investigation, a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, loving-kindness, compassion, patience, and a few others. A true equanimity is able to meet all of the vicissitudes of life, these flip-flops of the mind that we encounter, in relationship to what are called the eight worldly winds. The eight worldly winds of praise and blame, of gain and loss, of pleasure and pain, of fame or distinction or disrepute or disrespect or disregard that come our way, that come our way throughout our life. True equanimity is able to meet all of these, what sometimes feel like harsh tests. And it's quickly able to regenerate its strength from one's inner resources, the resources that have been developed through our diligent practice. And again, some words from the Buddha in relationship to this. Develop the mind of equilibrium. 
you will always be getting praise and blame. But do not let either affect the poise of the mind. Follow the calmness, the absence of pride. There's an amazing practice that was, and as I've been told, maybe occasionally is still practiced by the Hopi Indians. I don't recommend this practice. But we can take it as a metaphor for us in relationship to the cultivation and manifestation of the power of fearlessness, evenness of mind, evenness of heart, and the protection that is one of the great strengths of equanimity. And this is from the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. There were all kinds of snakes, rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60, all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll on the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved slowly toward an old man, singing with his eyes closed, climbed up his crossed legs, coiled in front of his breech cloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon, this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their heads to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face, then going to sleep. It showed they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest. That is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. True equanimity will possess the power of protection and a wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, the heart, getting seduced by and caught up in states of fear, states of greed and aversion, and will also possess the power of renewing itself. Only if it's rooted deeply in a growing insight into the true nature of things. There are two particular understandings that I'd like to spend a little time exploring with you this evening, in that as they develop along the way of our practice and eventually ripen into insight, are really the roots of equanimity. The first of these is our growing clarity in understanding how the vicissitudes, how the ups and downs, the eight worldly winds of life, how they originate, how they come to be. And this is the understanding of kama or karma. The understanding that the various experiences of stress, of suffering, and the experiences of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and now in this lifetime and on back and back. This is kama. This is our kama. We're born, we spring, so to say, out of the womb of kama. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we're undeniably the heirs of our kama. So, for instance, as soon as we've spoken words or as soon as we've performed any action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet, it remains with us. 
and in some way inevitably returns to us as our due inheritance. We could say that everything that happens and the ease or dis-ease in our mind, the ease or dis-ease in our heart, is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the happenings in life, internally and externally. Our suffering and happiness in this life, in any given moment, is due to our own mind. Our motivations, our responses, our reactions to phenomena. Not due to our wishes for ourselves, and not due to some other person, or some outer antagonistic or seemingly strange or foreign world. As this understanding begins to take root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. And so is really the first basis of equanimity. When, in fact, with everything that happens around us and within us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, what is there to fear? the heart begins to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. And that, in fact, we're not trapped on the karmic wheel, running around and around and around like a little mouse. But, of course, as all of us have experienced, fear, uncertainty, and insecurity arise along the way. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds. Refuge from this particular perspective is in wholesome thought, wholesome motivations, wholesome words, and performing wholesome actions. And as we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past, and really a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. Our practice itself, this incredible training of the mind, this incredible training of the heart that we're all involved with, is a very good deed. The best, really. And really the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been important for me in understanding karma or kama is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's really never too late. And so we practice this, and it becomes established in us. It becomes a refuge. And at some point, we really begin to know for sure as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And in this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than increase of the good? As this becomes more and more a certainty in our heart, in our mind, the mind becomes more tranquil and serene. And we gain the great strength of a patient heart and the evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole. Along the way of our practice, with the development and the blossoming of relative equanimity, we find that we have 
the strength to endure when we need to endure and to see clearly when that's what's being called for. We have the possibility of not continuing to blindly fall into the same holes over and over again, but to begin to walk down a different street, so to say. The understanding of karma can imbue us with a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from karma, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering. As we move more and more clearly and see our own craving and delusion and our habitual tendency to create and engage in situations that strain and sap our strength and sap our healthy resistance, a wholesome disgust, as the Buddha, as the Buddha called it, arises. And our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and delusion is strengthened. The fruit of the deliverance of deep and clear experience of equanimity is the escape from greed. And the Pali word for this is tanha, which is usually uh, translated as insatiable thirst. So the fruit of the deliverance of the deep and clear experience and insight of equanimity is the escape from insatiable thirst. So the first insight that's the basis of equanimity is a growing understanding of karma. The second insight that equanimity is based on is the teaching and understanding of anatta, not self. From this perspective, there's no one, no self, performing any deeds, nor do the results affect any self. The fact is, the truth is, that it's the delusion of a separate, solid self, the delusion of a separate me that creates suffering, and disturbs equanimity. If we claim ownership, meaning this is mine, this is me, this is who I am, the vicissitudes of life will always throw us into the realm of suffering. So for instance, if this or that aspect of our personality, some particular quality of ours is criticized or blamed, One usually thinks, I am blamed, and equanimity is shaken. When we receive approval or praise for something we've done, often one thinks, I've been praised, I'm a success. Equanimity is disturbed. If this or that work that we've done doesn't succeed or isn't praised in the way that we want it to be, one might think, my work has failed, or I have failed, and equanimity is shaken. If wealth or a loved one is lost, one might think, what's mine is gone. And again, equanimity is shaken. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is always shaken in the delusion of identification of me, mine, I am. As understanding deepens and the heart opens, there's an easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. Unshakable equanimity is established by giving up, by relinquishing all possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mine, which 
itself actually might be quite a daunting thought. And so, and so we begin with the small things from which it's easy to detach oneself and gradually, gradually working up to the possessions, the goals, and the identifications that we so tenaciously cling to. The first time that I taught here at the Forest Refuge was for two months. And that was quite a while ago. I was the first visiting teacher here. And I was here uh, long enough uh, to really begin to settle in. And, and yet again and again, there was the awareness that the house that I was staying in wasn't mine. And it came about in small, simple, and sometimes surprising ways. When I first got here, there was no telephone in the house. And that was difficult. And so I lobbied for a phone, we could say. In moments, uh, it felt like it was very much for me, this phone. And there was quite a degree of tension and stress in this. But in truth, the phone was going to be for the many, many, many others who would be using this house over many years. At one point, I was told that it was okayed, that a phone would be put into the house. But when uh, that would happen was unknown. So at that point, uh, there was quite a quick letting go. No more thoughts about it occurred. And I relaxed. And I really, truly felt that it just didn't matter if the phone arrived while I was staying in the house or not. It wasn't for me. It wasn't mine. Well, a little bit into that two month, first two months of teaching here, it was decided to purchase a rug for the living room of the house. Now, Jeannie, who was the housekeeper at that time, brought over the rug catalog for us to decide which rug to order. It clearly wasn't a rug for me. It wasn't for my house. We were choosing for anyone. We were choosing for everyone. And I noticed that it's such a different experience in the heart with this way of looking at things, of choosing things. Not the subtle contraction of something being mine, being for me. There was an openness, a spaciousness, no contraction, no clinging in the choosing. And it was a lot more fun that way, actually. So the small things at first from small things that we think are ours and working up to giving up or letting go or relinquishing other stickier thoughts of self. Beginning to relinquish the identification with some of the qualities that we're identified with as who we think we are. Our personality. It's the thought of these things being who I am that we relinquish. The clinging thought of these being who I am that we give up, that we let go of. And beginning with small aspects of our personality, qualities of maybe seeming minor importance. And very slowly through our practice, working up to letting go of identification practicing detachment in relationship to those emotions and aversions that we might regard as the center of our being. Ajahn Sumedho, the former abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England, shares a wonderful way of practicing with this. When a particular habitual tendency of his shows up, In this case, he's talking about the critical mind. He says, oh, there's my personality. Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our identity with this or that being who I am, being me? 
even including positive emotions or aversions or aversions or special gifts, which we might regard, might be identified with as the center of our being. To whatever degree we abandon, we relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, of I am, to whatever degree we forsake thoughts of self, equanimity will enter our heart. When we realize, when we really truly come to know anything as void of a self, in those moments, how could it cause us any agitation due to lust or hatred or fear or grief? Thus the teachings and the practice of anatta is an important guide along the path to perfect equanimity and our guide along the path to liberation. Equanimity, the unshakable balance of mind, the unshakable balance of heart is rooted in insight. The first understanding, the first insight being that of kama, and the second being anatta. The heart, the mind of specific neutrality isn't cold or heartless or dull. It doesn't manifest out of an emotional emptiness, but out of a fullness or a completeness of connection and understanding. At some point in our practice, equanimity will evolve from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity. In the progress of insight, when equanimity is strong, fulfilled, mature, concentration and insight or concentration and understanding occur coupled together without either one exceeding the other along with an imbalance with all of the other factors of enlightenment. And at that point, there's insight knowledge into the dangers of the afflictive emotions, into the dangers of the defilements, and insight knowledge into the advantages of purification. Insight or understanding at this point produces what the Buddha called a satisfiedness, a purifiedness, and a clarifiedness within one, which is manifesting due to one's capacity for onlooking equanimity. The Buddha spoke about this as absolute equanimity or unworldly or holy equanimity. And in the Buddha's words, just as all the streams of the world enter the great ocean and all the waters of the sky rain into it, but not increase or decrease the great ocean, but, but not increase or decrease of the great ocean is to be seen. Such is the nature of holy equanimity. I'd like to share a description that I found, uh, a really beautiful description that I found of the liberated mind, the liberated heart, the mind and heart of six-limbed equanimity, we could say. The mind and heart of an awakened one is likened to a clear, well-cut crystal Because it's clear, without stains, it absorbs all the rays of light and sends them out again, intensified by the power and purity of its concentrated energy. The crystal can't be tainted by the colors of the rays. Its hardness can't be pierced. Its perfectly harmonious structure can't be disturbed. In its purity and strength, the crystal remains unchanged. And in less poetic language, 
the equanimity of an awakened one is unshakable because it's absolute. And it's absolute simply because it clings to nothing. And so we practice here in retreat and at home in the midst of our daily lives. We practice with sincerity and with diligence. We sit with a growing understanding and the blossoming of insight. And because of all of this, it's inevitable that the wholesome factors of mind and heart, as well as the liberating insights, will sprout, blossom, and eventually mature within us. It's our kama, we could say. It's our karma. And I'd like to close the talk this evening with a short piece from the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha. Whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, is not perturbed, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When her or his mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her, to him? And let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.